Welcome into All In with Adam, episode three. This is going to be a much more relaxing episode, at least from my perspective. Um, you know, so in the first two episodes, really, I suppose we kick this off with a drug story and then somewhat of a, a philosophical idea that I only sort of scratched the surface on. Uh, and those are those are heavy, and for me, that comes with a little bit of stress in that I want to I want to tell the story right, or I want to present the idea accurately, and sort of that the heaviness of those topics makes them a little bit less relaxing for me to to record, I, I guess, and to edit. You know, there's a lot more to think about. So in this podcast, um, it's sort of the antithesis of that, and then this is going to be um, a collection of short stories, I suppose, and, and I think this podcast will serve uh, two main functions. One of them is going to be sort of the get-to-know-you idea. Uh, you guys will learn a lot more about me, some background, some context, and I think it's important that I provide that before I begin talking about other topics that I want to get into on this podcast. And the second function of this podcast is going to be somewhat of a proposal for me to you about topics that we can explore, because the reality is I don't know um, the listeners of this podcast very well yet, so I'm not entirely sure what you want to learn about, to listen to me talk about. So as we go through some of these stories and different topics, I'm not gonna go all the way down some of these different wormholes, but I am curious about um, what within the context of this podcast actually interests you. What do you uh, want to hear me expand on? So if you're watching on a platform where you can comment, please let me know or send me an email. Um, yeah, I would love to hear what you guys think about all of this stuff. So to my left and your right is this shelf. That's the name of this episode. Uh, and this shelf was a project that I spent maybe a month or two working on. And for me, this was a pretty artistic project in that I wanted to have a tall shelf like this that effectively had items that all represented something, whether something about my identity or they had a story behind them or it was a, a metaphor for one of my interests or one of my passions. So that's what this entire shelf is. And Instead of making everybody just stare at the shelf every week and guess uh, what some of these items are and what they might mean, I thought it would be really cool to go through and, and sort of explain why I bought or acquired every little thing on this shelf and what the story is behind it. And um, again, two functions. We'll get to know each other, but also if any of these topics uh, particularly interest you and you want me to expand on them, uh, let me know. So let's start off really easy. I have some books at the bottom. I'll just splice in some B-roll here throughout the podcast if you're watching on YouTube. Um, <clears throat> and it's ironic that I would even put books here because I am not kidding. I do not read. I try to read. Maybe once a year I'll get a book and see if I can survive it. But something about digital media has completely changed the way that I consume content or media of any kind. It, the way that I put data into my mind is just... Man, it's just not reading. I don't know what else to say. And and it's weird because I grew up reading a lot. I, I read a ton. I, I was in a reading competition um, in like third or fourth grade where you had to read so many words and, you know, track all of these books that you had read. But somewhere around high school, I found that through conversation or through experience or through YouTube, really, right, right around when I was age 13, 14, 15 was when YouTube first became a thing, or even the concept that you could just Google information and learn about something that way, sort of at your disposal. Ever since then, sitting down with a book has been virtually impossible for me. And I don't want, I don't want to imply that I cannot read. I certainly can read, uh, and I think I'm a very good reader. But it just lost its appeal to me. It always has felt like a very inefficient way to gather information. And as I've gotten older, you know, there's been certain things I've been so interested in that 
I have to read it, basically. Like, I either have to go get the audiobook or I just have to read the book. There's really no other way to get uh, certain types of information. So, uh, I do own many, many books, but for me, the books on this shelf aren't even books that I actually read, or I don't think I've read... No, I haven't read any of those books, actually. I, that's kind of a lie. There is one that I have read um, that is The Four Agreements. I had to read that one in rehab. That was actually a very good book. I read a lot in rehab, I guess. A whole lot of sitting around. But the books for me on this shelf represent the art of storytelling. And I have always been interested in being a storyteller. And really, as I began to no longer read books when I was young, I began writing books instead. I actually wrote two books before I was 18 years old, two novels, one of which is actually published, um, and the other was never published, I didn't really do anything with it, but it is complete. And writing to me, or the idea of telling stories, was so much more appealing than diving into someone else's story. And in so many ways, the storyteller's mindset is something that helped shape um, my content in the drum industry. I look at drum lessons, the drum lessons that I create for YouTube, for example, I look at them as though I'm telling a story. There has to be uh, something interesting in the beginning. There has to be a main theme that's sort of um, available throughout the entire presentation. There has to be a conclusion. There has to be a climax and a peak. And for some reason, this was always an easy way for me to think about everything, right? I look at all sorts of presentations of ideas as just different versions of stories. So it's something that came very natural to me, and I think that is obviously present when it comes to books in general, right? Anybody who's ever written a book is some version of a storyteller. And I think long before I will read another book, I will probably write another book. And that's definitely something that I want to do more of, just more writing in general. I would love to write another book one day. The the real catch is, you know, what do you commit your time to? As I've gotten older, it's a lot harder to get caught on fire for some random idea. Um, this podcast is sort of a lone wolf in that context. But I would love to write another book, and if not write another book, um, one thing I've always had on the back burner is doing a documentary, because I look at a documentary as sort of the, it's the storytelling aspect but there's also like a journalistic element sprinkled on there, and I do kind of like that. I like the thought of um, shining light on a story that no one has ever seen, and also coming from sort of a persuasive position in that I can change people's minds about a topic that they may have, um, you know, thought that they already had their mind made up on, right? So in the wheelhouse of storytelling, um, whether that's in writing a new book one day or... Ugh, making a documentary, you know, storytelling is a huge part of who I am. And and in part, I think that's kind of obvious. I think the way that I make drum lessons, if you've seen any of the other content sort of from the other part of my career, you know, I, I hope that's obvious that I'm just a storytelling kind of person. Everything from economy of words to to recirculating the vocabulary that you're going to use, churning things up and finding the optimal way to present something, to articulate something. To me, that is highly valuable. That's just how I like to present myself and my stories to the world. So storytelling is a big one. Kind of hard to see from this particular angle, but I'll show you some B-roll. Um, I've got a little mushroom statue down there, and obviously we've done a deep dive on, on my background with psychedelics, but uh, mushrooms definitely this sounds so corny, um, like hold a special place in my psychedelic heart in that they are, um, compared to other psychedelics, they're kinder. I think they're a little bit kinder. Uh, I've, I've had a 
whew, I had a rough acid trip in high school. Um, so LSD is not one that I've got a lot of experience with as an adult. I mean, I've done it, done it many times, but as a um, about, about age 16 or so, I got a, an ass whooping that I wasn't ready for. So um, LSD has not always been been a real close one for me. You know, DMT is an interesting one as well as we're going through modern psychedelics. Um, it's just the the all or nothing nature is sometimes not appealing. I don't like that I either have to go all the way to the depths of the end of the universe or not. I sort of like the the option of taking one gram of mushrooms and you know keeping one foot in reality uh, and sort of tiptoeing in the other realm. I, I appreciate that about mushrooms. So um, yeah, and if you're if you're wondering or if you need more context, go watch episode one. Um, fun mushroom story for you there. Now, sort of in this same category, uh, just above here on the second shelf, which you can see, I have a collection of like vintage pharmaceutical bottles. And for me, this is representative of, you know, my interest in human interactions with drugs over time. You know, and there's many directions I could go here to sort of expand what in particular interests me so much about um, drugs in human history. But I think one thing that's important to know is that you know, when I grew up, I had a, a very natural magnetism towards altering my state of mind. And as someone who was raised as a Christian, you know, you're basically told that intent doesn't matter. The act is what matters, right? The act of sin. And so there's this very black and white nature to a lot of behaviors, um, sex being one of them, right? Like if you have sex before you're married, that's bad. Um, and whether or not you love the person or care about them or you have a history together, that's all irrelevant. If you're not married, it goes into the bad category. And altering my state of consciousness was always like that. That's how it was presented to me. And so as I've unlearned that, I've sort of internally justified this magnetism that I experience for altering my state of consciousness. And I've, I've grown to believe that there is somewhat of a of a natural law built in that humans will inherently seek out these other states of consciousness. And I'm curious to why that is. I'm curious why there is such a, a burden to sobriety for people. And I think a lot of that is rooted in just the, the suffering that is life, the deeply unsatisfactory nature of life itself. But see, that would be under the domain of pure escapism. And I don't always think that's what's going on. I think a lot of people have a desire to alter their states of consciousness with drugs for a huge variety of reasons. And in that context, I think intention matters a lot. What are you trying to do here? And so for me, part of my relationship to drugs as that has matured over the years has been always putting my intentions in check, making sure that I am uh, approaching this drug or this substance or seeking out um, an altered state of consciousness for an appropriate reason with a a good intention. And if those things are there, I think you can foster some really healthy relationships to different drugs and find a lot of benefits there. So not only am I personally interested in these topics, but I'm interested in how human beings and drugs have sort of co-evolved together um, throughout history. Because remember, it wasn't that long ago that doctors were just casually prescribing cocaine to people. I mean, that is fucking fascinating that there was a period of time not that long ago when we had crazy misconceptions about what certain drugs were. I mean, the history of opium alone is absolutely fascinating. And then you can get into how politicized drugs have become in a lot of different contexts, how cultures have swung completely against drugs, yet if you go back far enough, drugs were at the center of many other successful cultures and societies. So this is a topic that can go a lot of different directions, but it's one that has always interested me, sort of the 
the human relationship to altering our, our states of consciousness, that has always been fascinating to me. And I think a good representation of that um, is some vintage pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical bottles because I don't know how old some of these are. I mean, they look like they could be from the 40s or 50s, but um, Jesus, I mean, half of this stuff could just be poison. <laughs> we have we have no idea. I guess I could look them up individually, but I would imagine like several of these drugs, the drugs that used to be in those bottles are totally banned at this point. And you know, one thing I almost put on this shelf, I didn't do it, but, but I considered it. Um, I considered getting like a small fifth of vodka and a pack of cigarettes because I smoked cigarettes for 13, 15 years, somewhere in that range. Um, and vodka was my drink of choice when I drank. And I enjoy a close proximity to those substances. I enjoy it because I don't like pretending that it's not still tempting. Like cigarettes still smell good to me. Having a drink still sounds awesome. It never not sounded awesome, you know? And in some weird fucked up way that I wouldn't recommend to anybody else, for me, having a close proximity to that thing that almost destroyed me and even in that closeness, saying, fuck you, that to me is, it's like the existential flex that I have. It is sort of me leaning into the power that I now believe I have um, over that substance, right? And I heard a story when I was in rehab that, that always stuck with me about a guy who quit chewing tobacco and he still kept carrying the chewing tobacco, the little puck. He would carry that around in his pocket all the time and he would open it up and he would smell it and he would say, fuck you, and he'd put it back in his pocket. It's almost like, like an exercise in control, an exercise in power to a degree that you don't have to do. And I don't know, something about my personality enjoys like the extreme nature of that, um, almost like like the the flirting with that dangerous thing makes me that much tougher. And Jesus, this would be such horrible advice for somebody else, but I'm trying to be fully transparent here in that um, I enjoy having a, a relatively close proximity to some of those more dangerous things and still maintaining control over, over my choices there. So I haven't bought a fucking fifth of vodka and a pack of cigarettes to put on the shelf, but I might, I might. Um, something about about leaving the door open and still not choosing to go through. Something about that feels very human. It feels uh, it feels empowering to me. So, yeah, I don't know. I probably won't do that. Who knows? Now, let me take you back down to this bottom shelf here. I've got two metronomes here. Um, one of these is absolutely beautiful. My buddy Phil gave that to me. Shout out, Phil. Um, you know, time measurement has always been something that I've been interested in. And, and far beyond the context of drums... You know, a lot of times when I would talk with drummers who were confused about some of the larger musical concepts or the rhythmic concepts about, you know, how do we count time? Like, like they're struggling with this concept of measuring time, which is effectively what a drummer does. You know, one of the analogies that I would use would be like a, a secretary. Let's just say a secretary at a law firm because that's what my mom did. Shout out mom. So think about the role of that person. You're going to be in charge of a lot of scheduling. So if somebody calls and says, hey, I need to make an appointment um, at this law firm, the secretary would open up a calendar more than likely. And, and just imagine if they said, um, well, how, how's September looking for you? Well, September isn't specific enough. That doesn't really do anybody any good. So they say, okay, well, how about the first week of September? Well, that's better, but when? When in September? You say, okay, well, Monday. Okay, 
better still, but what time on Monday? And they say afternoon. We're getting there, but it has to be subdivided. Time has to be subdivided in in order for us to measure it. The subdivisions that we've chosen are always interesting to me because we have through like Gregorian and Mayan calendars, we have we figured out a lot about how planets move around and how time sort of passes as we kind of understand it. We understand the cycle of a year. We understand that we could divide that mathematically into 12 months, that there are four seasons. Um, and as we subdivide further, we get into weeks, days, hours, minutes, seconds, microseconds, nanoseconds, and and we continually subdivide time so we can more accurately measure it. And that makes the measurement of time far more useful for us. And this is no different than how we subdivide um, within the context of like rhythmic measurement, right? You, you start out with, um, let's say a, a whole song. Okay, that's a really shitty measurement. It's just like three minutes of, of ambiguous time. Uh, so then you would break this down into well so sections of the song. That would be helpful. Um, you would assign a tempo over the whole thing. At a certain point, you would have measures. Those measures would be whole notes, half notes, eighth notes, 16th notes, and you would subdivide all the way to 128th notes or whatever subdivision uh, was the most minute if you needed to measure um, that acutely within the thing that you're measuring. I also find it fascinating that the chronological map that we use now was something that we discovered. We didn't make up time. We didn't necessarily invent this linear measurement of time in the universe that we live in. It was found here. And I feel that way about music as well, right? We found the frequencies. We found the rhythmic subdivisions. These were not purely inventions of ours. They were more so discoveries. And in the same way, time itself is a discovery. It came with this planet at the very least, but the universe would be a better way to say that. And you know, another fascinating thing about time for me is that it allows you to perceive the individual as a little bit more of a collective in that you are you right now, but you're also you 10 years from now. And that's a different person. And the you of 10 years ago was also a different person. And so depending on on where you decide to take a snapshot of your life, you could have any number of, of different variables of your identity. And Something about that is just absolutely fascinating, that you are you, and you've always been you, yet there are different iterations of you over the expanse of time, and that is really tough to wrap your head around sometimes. It also, you know, our understanding of time would directly impact our behavior. You should behave as though a new version of you exists 20 years from now, and if you do that, it is so odd that time in itself has changed your behavior, right? You, you, have, you have some element of, of faith that in the future, you will still be here. And that version of you is one that is worth preparing for. It's worth setting things up for that guy who's not even here yet. But it's also you, fucking time. I don't know. I don't have enough, <laughs> speaking of time, I don't have enough time to go down all of these wormholes. But Measurement of time has always been something that has fascinated me, and, and of course, in in a more practical, tangible way, that, that takes the form of drums a lot of time, because that's just actual measurement of time, um, but also some of the larger philosophies about what time is, how we've discovered it, and what does it mean to be human beings passing through time? I don't know. Maybe we'll get into that a little later on in this podcast.
up here on this middle shelf, actually, I'll start with this one. It's kind of cool. Um, this is also from my buddy Phil. He's a collector. He's got a lot of cool shit. Uh, this is a Toyota badge. I'm a huge Toyota nerd. This is a little not philosophical. I just fucking like Toyotas, if I'm being honest. Um, I have a Toyota Tundra. It's an 07. It's lifted. I got an exhaust on it. It's a big old obnoxious, uh, an obnoxious beast. Before that, that Tundra, I had a Lexus ES350. Lexus is also, you know, uh, Toyota. Um, that was a great car, man. It really pained me to sell that car, but I I own this house that I live in here, and as I was building this studio and doing all sorts of projects around the house, I just beat the shit out of that Lexus. As much as I loved that car, it didn't make any sense to just keep beating up like a luxury sedan. It was just the wrong car for me. So I got my Tundra. Um, absolutely love that truck. And I work from home so I can handle the 12 miles a gallon that it gets. And then my fiance, man, I, I fucking hate the word fiance. It's such a temporary placeholder word. We've been together eight years. So wife honestly sounds way better. If I'm talking to a stranger, sometimes I'll just say wife. But girlfriend is also the wrong word for somebody that you own a home with and all of that shit. So um, anyway, but fiance Kelly, she's got a Lexus GX470. Uh, also lifted. It's got airbags in it. It's the it's the actual off-road beast in the family. Um, and I really, really enjoy the process of like hunting for a car, finding the good story behind it. And you know, part of that is because I, I've talked about this before. I can't remember which this podcast or on Orlando Drummer stuff, I had a, a job. This was right after I got out of college, yeah. And the job was basically automotive photography. I worked for a company that gave me a smart car and then they gave me a camera. That's how I first got introduced to like nicer DSLR cameras and a little laptop, and I would take this smart car around to mostly Toyota dealerships. And my job was to go inside the dealership, get 50 sets of keys, and go take pictures of every single used car that they had in their lot. And some of these car dealerships would sell 20 or 30 cars a day. Um, it just depended on on the day and what, what the dealership was. But So every day you would show up and there were new cars, uh, mostly used cars, that you would have to go you know, start up, drive around, stage in a certain part of the parking lot, and then take photos of them. And then with a little internet card and a laptop in the back of a smart car, um, you would have to upload all of those pictures to AutoTrader, to Craigslist, things like that. And so I drove anywhere from, you know, 20 to 75 cars a day for like at least two years. I actually got laid off from that job purely because of like the DIY tech movement. People just realized that they could buy their own camera and do this job pretty easy. They could just pay the the kid working for nine bucks an hour at the front desk could, to go take some pictures. And so that's what they ended up doing. So as far as I know, that that job doesn't even really exist anymore. Um, but I did it for a couple of years and I drove a ton of cars. And that job is one of the things that made me fall in love with Toyotas. You know, I drove every make model you could ever imagine from Lamborghinis and Ferraris to uh, Lotus Elises, imported Acura NSXs, um, all sorts of wild vehicles I got a chance to drive. And I fell in love with Japanese engineering and I fell out of love with German engineering. Um, I really dislike BMWs and Mercedes, um, just not a fan at all. I would say Volkswagen would be my least favorite car manufacturer of all. I drove hundreds of them and oh my goodness, I, <laughs> you couldn't pay me to drive a Volkswagen. <laughs> 
But Toyotas notoriously always seem to be in the best shape with the highest miles. Um, I drove a number of Toyota Avalons, which is like a big V8 sedan, same body and chassis as the um, Lexus ES350 that I had. You know, I drove a ton of those with 400,000 plus miles. Uh, same with Tundras. I, I drove a lot of V8 5.7 Tundras or 4.7s that had you know, 350,000 miles and they just purred like a kitten. It was really unbelievable. So that was one of the things that got me so interested in uh, in Toyota. I drove a lot of FJ Cruisers, a lot of um, Lexus LXs and GXs. And so that whole overlanding category is very interesting to me. Uh, I just absolutely love Toyota. So I doubt we're going to do a Toyota podcast. That's probably already more than nerdy enough for most of the people listening. But if you got a Toyota, uh, shout out to you, man. Let me know in the comments. Now, also here on this uh, middle part of the shelf, I have a safe and some locks. And the simplistic version of this would be that I'm really into security. I'm into home security. I'm into, I suppose what you would call like a, a survivalist or a prepper sort of mentality. And certainly not in like the paranoid context and that I'm, you know, anticipating the civil war to go down any day. It's certainly not that extreme for me. I'm not like a doomsday sort of person necessarily, but I do believe that there is, at least for me, it feels incumbent upon me as a soon-to-be husband and a partner to a woman, and as a as a responsible individual, it feels incumbent upon me to be of the mindset that I should be a protector to some degree, protector of my house, of my belongings, of those who I am in some capacity responsible for, right? That could be my fucking pets. It could certainly be my fiance, uh, but just my household, my property, my own personal well-being. Um, it, it's a part of my my masculinity that I choose to lean into. And just to clarify, I really don't care if anybody else feels the same way. It's not like a gender role thing necessarily. But for me, the idea of being the protector has always come very natural for me. It just made sense uh, for me personally. And so it's a part of my personality and my identity that I really enjoy leaning into. And there's some some easy examples and context that I could give you. Um, I'm really into like home security. So I have a, a very elaborate camera system here. There are 12 cameras on my property. I have four on my studio and I have eight more that are on my actual house. Those are all monitored here in the studio and inside and they're on apps on my phone with notifications. For any of my home security nerds, they're not like ring cameras. I'm not doing any of that shit. Uh, they're all uh, PoE, power over ethernet, so I can operate my entire security system without the internet. All I actually need is power. I have a security system on my actual home, so um, every single door and window has an alarm sensor that's you know hooked up to a central unit. Um, I have smart locks on all of my doors, so they can all be open with an app on my phone. I enjoy stockpiling things like propane and water and lumber um, and things where if the supply chains went down for any reason, how dependent on these uncontrollable factors do you want to be? That's sort of the question that I ask myself a lot of times. If if anything fell apart that is beyond my control, how much independence am I left with for things that I want, things that I need? And so keeping, you know, food storage, keeping water storage, fuel storage, things like that, that just made a lot of sense to me. It harms absolutely nothing to keep 10 or 15 gallons of gas uh, stored away and cycle that out every six months. It costs nothing to um, grab an extra propane tank and sort of um, throw that in the shed every time I go to Home Depot. You know, these are just very easy things that, that seemed 
seemed to go in the why not category for me. That's how I sort of got first you know, into this world. One thing I've done for, for many, many years is I always carry a gun. I carry a gun everywhere I go, assuming the law permits me to carry a gun there. I have a concealed carry permit. Um, I've got quite a large collection of guns. I want to say in the ballpark of 10 at the moment from you know larger hunting rifles, a variety of pistols. And you know one thing I would love to get into on this podcast is sort of firearm philosophy, specifically the American firearm philosophy, because the reality is whether you're a gun person or not, there are more guns than human beings in this country. And that is something that you have to wrestle with. You have to have to dive into the philosophy of why that is and what it is that, that the founding fathers of our country actually believed um, about firearms and why they chose to arm an entire population of people. I'll be the first to tell you that that level of freedom when it comes to firearms is not not without issue. It's not like there are no problems with doing that. There are there are many, many problems. But I think this is an incredibly nuanced and a very interesting topic that, that I know quite a bit about. I, I don't take being a gun owner um, lightly. I don't take being a a gun carrier lightly. I, I know what it feels like to walk through a grocery store with a firearm on your hip and be standing next to someone else's child. There is a a deep, deep responsibility uh, that comes with choosing to walk around with a firearm on your body, and I'm hyper aware of that. So at some point in this podcast, I would love to dive into uh, sort of the American firearm philosophy with you and sort of explain my perspectives on that, but it does very much align with this concept for me um, of being a, being a protector in so many ways, I think somebody who walks around and carries a gun with them legally and, and responsibly, someone who actually trains with firearms, you know, I, I think what that person is doing is you're saying to the universe that should a situation need a hero, need someone who is willing to step up and be the protector, I am willing to assume that role if it comes down to it. Now, of course, to say exactly how you'll behave in any given scenario is very difficult to do, but to be a responsible firearm owner is to raise your hand and say, I will be the fucking guy. If I have to be, I will be that guy. And there's a, a lot of nobility and integrity in that from my perspective. Now that, that also comes with a tremendous burden, a tremendous responsibility, and that's incumbent upon you to lean into that part of being a firearm owner um, if that's the direction that you wanna go. So firearm culture, firearm philosophy, and American history of firearms, all of this ties together in a very interesting way for me. And I understand that this is a touchy topic for a lot of people, but it's a topic that I feel quite capable of defending my position on, um, or at least explaining my own views. I feel quite capable of doing that. So if it's a topic that would at all interest anybody listening, um, let me know, and I can expand on this quite a bit further. So yeah, that's what the safe and the locks are effectively. Um, protector, provider, sort of, the lock to me is also like a sanctity of marriage kind of thing. It represents what what it is to make that commitment or make that promise to somebody. And I think that, that could vary. Marriages don't look the same for a lot of people. I think you get to define whatever the terms of your marriage are. But for me, I like the idea of um, a commitment in the sense of, of you're locking something in. You're saying this is good enough to hold on to. Um, and I like that a lot. And also the security analogy holds true, I suppose. Um, so yeah, that's the safe and the locks. And let's go to a slightly more dangerous one. Uh, I'll take you up to this shelf here. This is a collection of vintage gauges, essentially. 
And I guess with the gear in the back in the film reel, it's a little steampunky, not entirely what I was going for, but you know, vintage technology and Really, I should say, the human relationship to technology is something that I have always found fascinating. You know, one of the alternate names of this podcast was going to be called Dual Citizen, the Dual Citizen Podcast. The URL, dualcitizen.com, was $10,000. So um, if anybody wants that, you can you can fucking have it. Um, but the reason I was going to call this Dual Citizen is because I feel like I'm in two worlds sometimes where I'm into individualism. I'm into homesteading. We'll talk about that a little later in this episode. Um, you know, I, I'm into home ownership and sort of a lot of more traditional, organic, human kind of things. I'm a musician, right? But at the same time, my entire career has been married to technology. I, I, I've had to have this this crazy obsession with cameras and audio and video editing. I have an audio engineering degree. Um, and so in so many ways, I feel like I'm in both worlds. I like the organic, analog, human elements um, that the life experience can bring you, but I'm also weirdly still obsessed with technology. And there are some deep ironies here. The first one that I was introduced to about how technology can sort of infringe upon our humanity was really in the analog versus digital debate within the context of the music recording industry. Because there are a lot of people who thought when digital recording first became a thing, just like when digital photography first became a thing, you know, they looked at that as sort of like that was infringing upon the human nature of these these ways to record the world around us. And I don't think that they're necessarily wrong. The question is, you know, what are you going to do about it, right? Are you going to choose to use a film camera for all eternity? Because at this point, doing that is sort of like a novel expression. You certainly can. Uh, and, and I think this is why you see like vinyl popping back up and film photography popping back up. You know, people become nostalgic. They, they want to look back at a at a different time, at a simpler time, a time that might have been more synonymous with their own uh, human expression, as opposed to leaning so heavily on technological innovations um, to be creative or to produce some sort of content or creative work. And you know, even my career in itself, I've had to deal with this problem or wrestle with this sort of philosophy here in that, you know, what is a drum teacher? Well, for most of the time that drum teachers have existed, a drum teacher was someone who played the drums professionally in a musical setting, which would normally mean they do albums, they gig and play in bands, they've gone on tours. So they've done all of those traditional musician things. And then they take that experience that they gathered over a decade or more, and sort of whether in retirement or just in more of a settled version of their career, they impart that knowledge onto younger drummers who want to do the same thing. That is a traditional musician and the traditional qualifications that you would need to be a drum teacher for most of the time that drum teachers have even been a thing. But in my world, I didn't have any of those same qualifications in the same way. I was reaching tens of thousands of people um, having a much smaller amount of experience. I still did tours and I still did albums and I still had had touched um, those those parts of the drum and the music sectors. You know, I had still gotten in that world and done a lot of those things. But by all means, you know, there was a lot of traditionalists, older drummers, older musicians who saw that first generation of YouTube music educator content creators coming up. And they were, 
they were rightfully threatened by us. Now, a lot of the reason for that is that, you know, we had this crazy reach to so many people at such an early, early age, you know, that there were lots of us that were in our, I mean, we were teenagers or in our 20s, and somehow we're able to reach tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people with a GoPro, right? Or whatever shitty camera we were using 10 years ago. And the reality is when you harness the power of the internet and you apply it to something that has never had the internet behind it before, you know, you, you see this unbelievably powerful domain just sort of blow up out of nowhere. This happened in every sector. Obviously, I'm just talking about the drum industry because that's the one that I did it in. But, you know, I, I completely, I've always understood the animosity and sort of the resistance that a lot of more traditional musicians feel against this new generation of uh, musicians who have come up creating musical content like on YouTube, for example. I get it. I get where they're coming from. And I get how this new technology in so many ways, grinds against the organic musicianship um, that that they would adhere so closely to, right? Of course, they're going to perceive the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. I mean, of course, you're going to perceive all of those eras uh, as, as like a better time, a different time. And it, it was. It was. There's a part of me that feels you know, I, I suppose you could say unlucky in that I didn't get to experience what what it was like to see the Beatles. I didn't get to experience what it was like to hear jazz for the first time in the 20s, like ragtime. You know, how fucking cool is that to have been there and to have seen that, to see these incredibly human moments within, you know, musical history. I would have loved to have been there for that. And I have a fondness that that I don't think can compare to the fondness that someone who, who might have, that it was actually there. But I have a fondness for for that type of musical expression, how human that is. And I think in a lot of ways, technology does threaten our humanity in, in many, many, many contexts. It's not just the music industry. That's just sort of how I started thinking about it was, okay, how could digital recording or digital photography, digital videography, how could that threaten the analog, human, organic nature of using tech to have creative expression? And so let's step out of the creative expression world for a moment and, and think about some other ways um, to, to think about this. You know, the, the word that I like to use when I describe the the impending threat of technology on the human race would be the technocracy. A technocracy is sort of a futuristic society that would be run almost entirely by technology, right? So there are a couple thought experiments here that are a little bit helpful to sort of understanding what a technocratic uh, world might look like in the future. One example I like to use is self-driving cars, um, because self-driving cars not only do they already exist, but they're going to there's going to be a whole lot more of them very very soon. And so a couple things come with that. One, there will be very few jobs left where people are required to drive cars. Very very few. Why would we pay pay a human who opens us up to the possibility of mistakes and accidents and driving poorly in some way when this could be fully automated by a machine? It would be safer, more cost effective, um, more efficient in regards to time. You know, th there's a lot of reasons why it would make more sense to take that role and sort of hand it over to tech. Now, once you solve for the problem of there being no driving jobs whatsoever, which in itself is already problematic, but let's just say you solve for that, the reality is you're going to be com combating against this, this 
argument of safety from a data perspective, because the reality is robots aren't gonna crash cars nearly as much as we do. They're gonna do a better job of it, just like they, and they ultimately do a better job of almost everything given enough time. And so whether we go 20 years in the future, 50 years in the future, or 150 years in the future, there will come a time when there is a valid argument for why should we let you drive? Why should we let you drive at all? It will be not only a novel thing to do in that you don't have to do this, nobody's asking you to drive a car, but also it will be arguably more dangerous for you to drive a car. You know, if you have 20 years of data to pitch the argument that no one has been injured in a vehicle um, when AI was operating that vehicle, the only people that ever get hurt in cars are people who were manually operating the cars. You have a pretty strong argument based on data that you really shouldn't be allowed to drive anymore. And so the question would be, how long is it until you aren't allowed to drive anymore? And hopefully that analogy sort of paints this picture that this potentially could be a piece of our humanity that gets chipped off the block. And it would be sold to you on the premise of safety. It is arguably... Really, it's definitively safer for you to not drive a car anymore. I don't know how that makes you feel, but that to me is quite scary. It's quite a scary idea. You know, another example I like to use when sort of introducing this topic of a, of a future technocratic society is one of gene editing in, let's say, unborn children. So hypothetically, let's say that we were able to um, edit the genes of an unborn baby to remove the Alzheimer's gene. We've effectively eliminated this from our society, at least for everyone who's willing to do this type of gene editing. So if you were having a child, you're at the hospital, doc says, hey, do you want your kid to have the Alzheimer's gene or not? We can go in, we can take it out, and it's got a 100% um, efficacy rate. There's no way that this is going to fail. It works every single time. Now, more than likely, you and a majority of people would say yes. They would say yes to that. If given the choice, if there's no harm done here, yes, I will remove the Alzheimer's gene uh, from my child. And I don't blame you, I, I don't blame you. But when you span this out over 75 years, and it turns out the only people that have Alzheimer's in the entire world are people who, whose parents chose to not edit their genes at birth, there will be a data-based scientific argument that that should not be allowed anymore, that those who choose to not edit their child's genes are savages, that they are primitive, that that's a barbaric way to bring a child into the world because technology has granted us the ability to move forward, to make progress in a certain way. But you have to view this from both sides and understand that in that world, when we've completely eliminated the Alzheimer's gene, does it come with the removal of your choice to not alter your baby's genetic code? And how do you feel about the sacrifice of that freedom? Even if it comes with a certain level of risk, um, it absolutely does come with a certain level of risk. Forfeiting that risk altogether and hanging on to that portion of your humanity, there is a, a deeply interesting conversation to be had there. That's, that might not even be the right word. It's a powerful conversation to have about the ethics of humanity, the ethics of technology, about you know safety versus freedom, ultimately. And of course, that conversation can be expanded to many, many other contexts within our culture now. Um, but I think when it comes to technology 
and how it influences humanity. I think these are really important things to discuss. So just food for thought. Those are two things to think about. You know, are you going to be allowed to drive one day or are we handing that freedom, that choice over to technology in some capacity? And of course, the other one is, will it ever be a crime to not alter your child's genetics um, based on the premise of safety? And that's really a fundamental theme of technocratic conspiracy type thinking is that on the premise of safety, technology will slowly chip away at either your freedoms or your humanity. And you could define those things a little bit differently. But um, anyway, this topic is undoubtedly a three hour podcast, if not a you know, a five-part podcast. Um, so I don't want to get too far down the wormhole, nor do I want to freak you guys out with some conspiratorial talk that I'm just grazing over the top of. But if anything, I put all of this stuff in the category of thought experiment. It is incredibly interesting for me uh, to explore some of these topics and talk out different scenarios. And one thing I'll leave you with in this sort of technocracy uh, topic here, you know, I love having these talks with my tattoo artist and with my barber because... I think those are two jobs that, you know, maybe not in my lifetime, but but I would say within the ballpark of 100 years, those jobs won't exist. And the timeline is always the trickiest part. I'm always hesitant to say it's going to be 100 years or 500 years. That's the that's the that's definitely the unknown element of a lot of these conversations. But I can certainly envision a world where you stick your head in a machine you know, you go up to a vending machine, like a photo booth type machine. You go in, you type in the haircut that you want. You hold perfectly still. Some little arms come out, hold your head all together. Cut your entire haircut. It's the best haircut you've ever had. It's perfect every time. Nobody ever gets hurt. It's extremely cheap. And boom, there you go. And so could you be a barber or hairstylist? Yeah, but nobody necessarily needs that. It's a little bit more of a novel thing to do. Same with tattoo artists. I can envision a world where you go lay in a machine and a robot comes and tattoos you in 30 seconds. And it's the best tattoo you've ever got. It rivals the best human tattoo artists in the world. I can undoubtedly envision that happening. And really a fun way to run through this thought experiment is to basically take any sector, any job whatsoever, and sort of run through like how long until technology could take that job. And if you span this out over the entire world and all the sectors and all of the fields, this is how you end up kind of running into this concept of universal basic income in that if there are no jobs because technology has met the needs of everyone and there is no value for you to offer the world, at least in a utilitarian sense, what does this do to society and how much of a, of a threat is this from, from an ethical level? Are we competing against natural law? There's arguments on both sides and I'm not here to sell you on one side or the other. I just want to introduce you to the topic and tell you why um, these fucking vintage gauges got so much real estate on this shelf because um, the ethics of technology and sort of some of the thought experiments that come with this and talking this out um, over the spans of time for me, this is just something that's absolutely fascinating. I have tattoos that tie into this entire concept here. So um, yeah, we will definitely touch on the, the technocratic theories uh, a little bit more later down the road in this podcast. All right, let's go up a little bit. I got three things left. I'm gonna start with a, with a fairly easy one. This is a nice, simple one. Um, I got a pair of skateboard trucks up there. And you know, I, I don't know what happened to my skateboards growing up. I wish that I had um, some of my old skateboard decks and things like that, but skateboarding was my first passion. It was the first thing that I fell in love with in the world. And 
you know, I started skateboarding when I was maybe, well, I had skateboards when I was like four, five, and six, but I really got into the industry of skateboarding when I was, let's say, probably at 12 years old. So from 12 to age like maybe 17-ish, right around when you're driving and girls and things like that, um, you know, skateboarding was my entire world. It was the only thing I wanted to do for a very, very long time. Skateboarding and writing, really, was how I spent most of middle school and high school and smoking weed. But as someone who was raised as an only child, the skateboarding community was instrumental in teaching me a lot of values that I didn't learn from my home environment. Because I was raised by a single mom, so you know, sharing, for example. It's hard to teach a kid how to share when there's no other kids around, right? Um, or sort of the idea of, of encouraging other people around you. It's hard to to teach that lesson when there's no other kids around the kid that you're trying to teach, right? So the skateboarding community had a lot of, of awesome ethical principles that were sort of built into it. And I'll give you some tangible examples. Anybody that skateboarded knows this. If you go to a skate park, you know, and you see a kid who's attempting to do a trick, even if that trick is objectively not very difficult, he's trying to do his first kickflip off of like a little ledge, you know, that's something that, that you might be able to learn within a year or two. And despite the the lack of difficulty objectively for that specific trick, if you see that kid, if the community of people is watching that kid try that all day, and he's on his 60th, his 70th attempt to do this trick, you will see a community of people rally around that person and show them support and encouragement. And when they finally get it, God, it's like a, it's like a, God, I can't believe I would get emotional over that. It's like a, like a family of people swarming around one person to acknowledge their effort. And it comes with a willingness to disregard the objective difficulty of the thing that they're trying. That's not the point. It is to acknowledge the, the place that that person, that that individual had to go in order to achieve that thing, it's relative to them. And to them, this was their entire day. They're going through a mental struggle um, that this entire community completely understands. And when I think back about how, how awesome that was to be 13 and to see total strangers, you know, three or four of my friends might have been at the skate park, but there's 20 or 30 or 40 people or 100 people there. We used to go to Van Skate Park when that was open in Virginia. Huge, huge skate park. You know, and to see all of these fucking strangers with race out of the picture, age out of the picture, skill level out of the picture, none of this mattered. That was all nonsense. It was that we shared a common set of values and the, the set of values in the skateboarding community, perseverance would be one of the biggest ones, right? This is fucking hard. You're getting beat up. You're incredibly frustrated. Um, you know, you're trying to learn something at the same time. So there's an element of, of dealing with the defeat when you fail to learn something. And you see other people doing it right in front of you. You know, it, it was just so powerful to be in a community where, where I got to experience that. I got to experience this unit of people with shared values, you know, sort of throw away this like, this like hierarchy for a moment and just be like a genuine community and rally around one person doing a difficult thing. That was so awesome. That was so awesome. And, 
I feel like I learned so much from the skateboarding community growing up. And so in a way, I feel indebted to that community. Um, much how I feel indebted to the drum industry, you know, any sector that that teaches me a lot that really that allowed me to gain so much value from it. I just have a fondness um, for some of those industries. So the skateboarding industry, I always say like in part, it helped raise me. I just learned so many values from there. So shout out to all my skateboarders. Now, I should clarify, I don't skateboard anymore, like at all. I could probably still do a couple of things. Um, <laughs> but the reason I don't skateboard anymore is really just injury. It's just not worth the risk for me anymore. But um, I would love to, to at least go to a skate park and just like ride around. I'm definitely not doing any tricks. You know, you get old once you crack 30, your ankles and your hips and shit don't work as well as they used to. So probably not too much. But um, yeah, maybe one day. All right, so let's drop down a little bit to these fucking eggs. This is one of the weirder things I have on here. First of all, I have uh, a lot of chickens. I have, what do I have at the moment? 13 chickens, and I got 25 babies in the mail. Um, so quite a few chickens. I got two coops that I actually built myself. Um, I'll throw some B-roll in here. These were a ton of fun to build. It's actually a clone. The one coop is, I built the one on the left first, and then I built like a mirror or like an inverted version of that same coop on the other side. So we can have like two flocks that can mingle sort of during the day. And you know, eggs to me, chicken specifically, represent this, this animal-human symbiosis that is really fascinating to me. I think it is so interesting that we have humans on a planet and we have you know tons of different animal species on the planet. And we've got a relationship to them. Now, for at least the last 75,000 years, you know, hunting them has been most of the relationship. But at a certain point, we began to work alongside a lot of different animal species. You know, dogs being a very interesting example, horses being another fascinating example. Um, you know, chickens are, are really a great one as well. And I think eggs are like this perfect metaphorical iconography uh, for the human-animal symbiotic relationship. We are, in so many ways, built for each other. You know, and I mentioned briefly in the first podcast, Something that I'm not going to go totally into today, but I've been on the carnivore diet for uh, almost an entire year now. In March, it'll be a year of 100% animal products. No sugar, no carbs, no nuts, no seeds, no fruits, no vegetables, nothing. It is very light dairy, uh, a lot of red meat, and eggs, basically. And that diet, this diet has made me, you know, really think more and more about my relationship as a human um, to animals in general. As much as I'm a believer that animals are here to serve us, um, we are here to serve them. And leaning into that symbiotic nature of the relationship, that's something that I'm always in very interested in doing. And so chickens are such a perfect uh, example of this because your goal as a chicken owner is to keep your chickens happy. Keeping your chickens happy makes them lay better eggs. Your food tastes better when their quality of life is higher. And to me, that is just so cool. And of course, at the end of that chicken's life, you're going to respectfully and mercifully take its life to eat it. Uh, and you're gonna do that in a way that would be far kinder than nature itself would ever allow them to be escorted out of this universe. Because the dark reality is that most animals will be eaten alive if they're out in the wild. If there's any predator to them, which chickens have a whole lot of predators, basically anything that can kill a chicken will kill a chicken, um, you know, eaten alive, that, that's how that goes for them. So it is a responsibility um, 
you know, for, for a human that sort of owns an animal, when, it, when it's time for them to leave this planet, for, for their consciousness to go away, it is a responsibility of us um, to do that ethically. And this gets into hunting a little bit, which is a topic I don't really want to go entirely into today, though I am a huge fan of hunting. But, you know, th this idea of sort of um, respectfully or ethically taking an animal's life, you know, to me, I, I really got to touch this this year um, with, with my dog Snitch. And before I talk about Snitch, you know, I, I would love to get, get into dogs in general because dogs are another one of these amazing examples, just like horses or chickens, where there's a very clear human-animal relationship here. I mean, if I were to ask you to list all of the ways that dogs serve humans, that's a very long list of shit. It's a huge list of things that dogs do across different industries, different fields, different career paths, all the way down to like companionship in your own home, right? I mean, I mean, there's just so many things that dogs do for us. And then the, to reverse that question, well, what do we do for dogs? Well, we do all sorts of things for dogs, right? Assuming that this was originally a wolf or a wild animal where we did absolutely nothing for them. Think about the entire pet industry. Think about what's inside of a fucking PetSmart, right? That's what we do for dogs. We we have lengthened their lifespan dramatically. We provide them with a quality of life that, that nature would not. Our lives are better with them, and their lives are better with us. And that's just fucking cool. And the same thing applies to horses. Same thing applies to chickens. Our lives are better together um, you know, than they would be otherwise. And so with dogs, you know, I have, a, I have kind of an interesting background here. Uh, my dad was a... Uh, he had like a like an attack dog. Uh, he was like like a canine cop, and so I grew up with a relatively close proximity to like higher level dog training. So that always kind of interested me. And you know, right now I have let's start with with my two dogs that I have now. Um, I've got two dogs that that serve two very different functions. Uh, first is Tahoe. He is almost three, about two and a half. Um, and he is what you would call a Puerto Rican street dog. He is uh, he's about as much of a mutt as you could possibly get. He is. This dog might be close to a world record for a height to weight ratio. He weighs 24 pounds and he's like, the top of his head comes to like mid thigh on me. He is irrationally tall and skinny. Um, and so we gave him sort of a tough name, but man, he should have been, he, he should have had a lot, a lot more feminine of a name. Um, he is not a tough dog by any means. This dog couldn't kill a cricket if he wanted to. Uh, but his function, is he's an alarm system. That's what that dog is. He will scream at the top of his lungs if he has the slightest indication that there is anything going wrong anywhere. Um, he's trained to watch our security cameras. So even when the mail truck comes, he has a specific kind of bark for that. Uh, if somebody comes and knocks on the door, we get a 30 second head start because he will watch the camera and see a car pull into the driveway. And there's a specific kind of bark for that as well. So um, he's my eyes around the house. He's, he's an incredible alarm system. And that's really his, his function and his value to us. Of course, aside from being a, a companion and very much like a son in our household, then there is Rhino, um, and Rhino is man. He <laughs> he's he's at my limit um, for the amount of savagery I'm willing to tolerate inside of my house. Rhino is a very special dog. He is highly aggressive. <laughs> and I don't mean that as though he's just gonna like bite a stranger for no reason. I mean, 
his his love language is violence. He is the epitome of like a young wild boy. He wants to wrestle. He wants to fight. Um, he's trained on a bite sleeve, so he will hit a bite sleeve. Um, but really, it's sort of general rule. You don't want to trust a dog in like an attack scenario, a personal protection scenario, until they're a little bit closer to like two years old. So he's a little unreliable in that category for now. But make no mistake, that dog will absolutely put somebody in the hospital. And really, you know, I have to tell everybody this. He changed my opinion of pit bulls because I used to buy into that concept that that pit bulls and some of the bully breeds were no different than any other dog. And the reality is that if you're talking to someone who is a talented dog trainer or at least an experienced dog trainer, that could certainly be the case. You can definitely take those dogs and domesticate them to a point where they are no different than any other breed. They are equally as safe, equally as trustworthy. But the difference is, as I've learned, if you take a dog like that, like Rhino, if you just chuck that dog in the backyard and let him raise himself, he he will turn out to be a fucking psychopath. That's a dog that will kill a kid. You know, it, it's it's built in them this affinity for war, for violence, for... Um, you know, everything's extreme with him. Everything's extreme. If we're running, we're running as fast as we fucking can. If we're fighting, we're fighting as hard as we possibly can. If it's tug of war, I will fight to the death over this thing. You know, his, not only is his body hilariously like muscular, obviously the dog has a crazy amount of testosterone going through his body. But also, it comes with a very hardened mind. Um, the dog is just an absolute soldier to, to a degree that will freak you out sometimes. You wonder, why can't you chill out? He's not wired that way. He is wired to fight to the death. Um, and, you know, sort of domesticating that uh, and sort of trying to strive for this bridled power is the name of the game when it comes to dogs that at least have his nature. They don't always have to be pit bulls, but um, he's just an absolute savage. So I have my alarm system in Tahoe, and I have my muscle in Rhino, um, and that's sort of the the balance that we've struck. They are polar opposites um, on the behavioral spectrum when it comes to dogs. Tahoe is about the easiest dog you could ever raise. I mean, snap your fingers and he'll do anything you want. Rhino, you could you could take a sledgehammer to the top of that dog's head and he wouldn't even he wouldn't even give you a look about it. I mean, they are very, very different dogs that require two very different um, dog parenting styles. And so it's been a great lesson for me as someone who is looking forward to being a parent one day um, to have experienced that, that you really can't treat or raise your children equally, that, that they require different parenting styles and your ability to pivot um, and sort of meet them where they are is just of the utmost importance when it comes to um, you know influencing or instilling some sort of values into a young person, in this case, some dogs. Now we can't move on from dogs until I talk briefly about Snitch and that's where the blue bicycle comes in. So years ago when I had several roommates, maybe 10 years ago, we, we had a small house that actually wasn't far from where I live now. And several of us had dogs and we used to play this game where we would say, pick an item that represents your dog. So we had one dog in the house that was very hyper and she was a blender, right? And this was just a fun game to play. Every animal in the house that we knew had their own little item they were tied to. I wish I could remember more of them. But Snitch, uh, his item was always a nice blue bicycle, just a beach cruiser, baby. He was, um, you know, he he was uh, one of the most well-balanced dogs that I had ever had. 
he wouldn't take any shit, but he also didn't want any problems. He would self-regulate in his play, um, so he was happy to play whenever you were, but if you weren't down, he wasn't down either. He was cool to sort of follow your lead, and in so many ways, he was right down the middle um, of the two dogs that I have now. He was not high in neuroticism at all. Um, he wasn't aggressive either. I mean, he, he was very balanced in so many ways, and man, I, I, I miss having that that balance in my house. Now I have the balance by having one fucking savage psychopath and then a much a much more neurotic dog and they balance each other out in their own sort of way. But I miss having the dog that had that balance internally. I, I miss that a lot. And in so many ways that that peaceful, calm nature of Snitch is like, it's like riding a blue bike on the beach. That's what it was like to, that's what it was like to be around him. He was a, a source of, of peace. He felt like an off day. That's what he felt like. He felt like a lazy Sunday. And I get emotional when I talk about Snitch for, for a lot of reasons. You know, I had to put Snitch down in, I want to say June, maybe July of this year, six months ago. And it was time. It was absolutely time. He he had uh, a heart condition, and the symptoms just got got very bad very quickly. And it was very obvious that it was time for him to go. And you know, first of all, I want to say that if you have a dog that has any sort of anything wrong with them, where it is abundantly clear that it is this dog's time to leave the planet, that in itself is such a blessing. That is such a, a wonderful thing to have because. The shit game that you don't want to play is one where you have to say, how much is your dog's life worth in dollars? Because if your dog has a condition that is treatable, you know, that that's it, it sucks if you don't have infinite money to spend fixing that problem. And, you know, let me give you the whole background on Snitch here to sort of understand where I'm coming from with this particular dog. So when I was 18 years old, I moved to college um, down here in Florida, and I got Snitch when he was a little bit under the age of two from the SPCA over at Mall of Millennia. 75 bucks I adopted that sucker. Best 75 bucks I ever spent. And so Snitch lived with me from age 18 all the way up until 30. Um, you know, 12 years I had him. He was 14 when he went. But when he was eight years old, he one day randomly um, woke up and he was hunched over. Hunched over, it looked like he was sick. It looked like he was gonna throw up or was having trouble like like digesting something. And so we took him to the vet and they said, well, he's not sick. Um, he actually injured his back. Like he threw his back out somehow. Snitch was a pit bull dachshund. So the dachshund genes, um, you know, they they got a shit, <laughs> a shit hand when it comes to spines, right? And so the vet basically said, look, he threw his back out. Um, he's getting a little bit older. Eight years old is not a very young dog, and um, he needs to take it easy for a few days. And so we brought him home, and the next day we woke up, and he had, um, he had shit and pissed himself, and he was dragging his legs. So we took him right back to the vet, and they immediately referred us to a veterinary neurosurgeon, which ironically, one of the highest ranked veterinary neurosurgeons in the state of Florida was like three or four miles from our house. Just lucky. And so we take him there. And by the time we're done with that appointment at the veterinary neurosurgeon's office, I had drained my entire bank account. I mean, I had spent well over a grand 
you know, just in that trip alone, but we, he had gone to the vet the day before and, you know, got medication and all this stuff. And at the time I just didn't have that much money. And they basically said, if we cut him open right now and do surgery on his spine, he's got a pinched nerve. That's what it was. He had a, a disc that effectively herniated. And they, th- they said they thought it was two discs, but one definitely had herniated. Um, if we cut him open right now, it'll be $4,000 and the best odds we can give you are 50, 50. It's a, it's a straight up down the middle gamble. If the surgery will do anything at all. And if we didn't want to do the surgery, their strong, overwhelming recommendation was to put him down immediately. They said that caring for a paralyzed dog was something that a lot of people attempt to do and virtually no one no one succeeds. Everybody eventually brings the dog back after a few weeks and they end up putting them down anyway. And so the neurosurgeon recommended that we not play that game, that we either roll the dice and do this surgery or we don't, and we put him down same day. And you know, the the reality was I didn't have the money. It wasn't a real option for me, right? So so basically that message was, kill your dog. That's that's what the message was. And this is in, you know, a 24, maybe 36 hour time period, a perfectly healthy eight year old dog, you know, who was just my best friend. I had no other dogs at the time. Um, You have to put him down. So we took him home and we called my main vet. We wanted to shout out him, Dr. Patina. Uh, Dr. Patina is an incredible vet and I will tell you why in this story. Um, Kirkpatrick Veterinary, by the way, for anywhere in Orlando, hit up Kirkpatrick Vet, ask for Dr. P, he's the man. And so we called Dr. Patina and said, uh, hey, you know, it, it's, it's bad news. The, the veterinary neurosurgeon that you recommended us to basically said that surgery is, is a gamble. We don't have the money anyway, and we're gonna put him down. So we scheduled that appointment. And so that next morning, me and Kelly and another friend of ours loaded Snitch up in the car to go put him down. And we walked into Dr. Patina's office, and he said, today's not the day. And I was already mentally prepared to do that I mean I I went there in my mind you know we had friends come over and say their goodbyes he was a popular dog you know a lot of people knew who he was and I had already gone there in my mind that uh that he was leaving today and we're in the office and the doctor walked in and he said we're not doing this and he said you know that veterinary neurosurgeon he said, you know, they, nobody goes casually to a veterinary neurosurgeon's office. You go there when something catastrophic has happened or you need a fucking neurosurgeon for your pet, right? And he said that one of the problems with doctors who deal in those sort of extremes all the time is that they don't tend to see their patients regularly how a normal vet might. And the vet, Dr. Patina, he said, you know, he said, I know you. He said, I know you work from home, right? Yeah. And he said, well... That alone is something that, that's in your favor when it comes to you know, your ability to deal with having a paralyzed dog. He said, people that work eight hours a day, that's the reason that they can't possibly have a paraplegic dog is because they're just not around them enough. But he said, I think you are. He said, you know, if you work from home full time, he said, that's an option you should explore that you would keep him alive because the reality is being paralyzed is, is a non-life-threatening condition. And he said, you know, 
Um, he said he looked at Snitch's blood work and all of this stuff, and he said, man, he said, there's just absolutely nothing else wrong with this dog. There's no heart problems at the time. Um, his blood work looks great. He's otherwise completely healthy. There's no reason to think he doesn't have several years left. And he said, I think you can do it. And he also said, you know, that there's a, there's a touch that a vet develops for looking at owners and pets and sort of knowing when, when that day comes. And he said, it's just not today. And he said, take him home for two weeks. And if after two weeks you decide that you still want to do this, then we'll do it. And so what a roller coaster that day was, right? To wake up and load my dog in the car. To go put him down. And then to drive home with him. And to be given this weird hope that had been taken from me by another doctor. It was a lot. It was a lot. And, you know, there's a lot more to the snitch story. But effectively... Um, he, he lived another six years. That doctor gave me six years. You know, what a, what a gift that man is. I hug him every time I see him. And back in June, when uh, it was time to let Snitch go, he did it. And I hugged him and I thanked him. I thanked him for his wisdom. You know, I felt so lucky to have found... To have found a doctor who, I mean, this guy fucking kisses. He would kiss Snitch on the forehead every time he saw him. You know, I don't know about you. I don't kiss other people's babies when I see him necessarily. But this guy was just um, so deeply kind and empathetic and understanding and wise that he was able to give me a gift that nobody else on the planet could have given me, which was an additional six years with my dog. And in raising a paraplegic dog, I learned so much. I learned so much about myself. I learned so much about what it means to be, um, to be an animal lover, to what it, what it means to be a parent to an animal, what it means to, to really live inside of that symbiotic relationship. Because the reality was every function of snitch that he may have had, well, they were all lessened. What does a paralyzed dog do for you? Well, companionship certainly but all of his other functions weren't really there but see the tables turned now it's my turn to serve him this can happen with a child it can happen with a friend sometimes you have to carry the burden sometimes the deal isn't as fair as it was when you first started it but that that doesn't really matter and so in a lot of ways you know we had eight years of sort of this balanced relationship and and for what he, Snitch gave me in those first eight years, companionship and loyalty and trust, it became my turn for the latter six years, for the last six years, to give back to him. And that required me to dig deep on some days, you know, especially the first year. There's such a learning curve, you know. Um, he had to be manually expressed is what they call it, meaning he can't go to the bathroom on his own ever, ever. So three, four times a day, every single day for six years, I had to do that. It just became a part of my life, a part of my routine. And, you know, you think you love your dog now. God damn. It stretches your capacity for love in a way that I would only rival with like, psychedelics or MDMA. I mean, it makes you dig deep 
to a to a a place that I never ha- had to to dig within my pet relationships before. And I would imagine that this holds true for parents of special needs children that there is a something beautiful and special about that 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 you don't have when you have, you know, a healthy child. And of course, I wish healthy children on everyone in the world. But if I were to have a special needs child, I have this small insight now because of Snitch into what that entails and the the type of love, the depth of love that is required there. And it is just really unique and really special. And so the whole Snitch story, this fucking blue bicycle, represents a deep level of gratitude for the animal kingdom, for Snitch specifically, for the wisdom of the vet who gave me an additional six years with him, um, for for what it means to be a special needs parent and sort of this this level of empathy that I have for those types of people now. You know, Snitch is just a, he's a powerful force of my 20s, a powerful force. I have this dog tattooed on me, which I got, I got it tattooed the year that I got him. It's one of my favorite tattoos. No regrets whatsoever, man. Um, part of my identity is in that fucking dog. And I understand that it, that it, it could be a little cringy for some people to hear somebody else talk about their dog, but if you're a dog person, you get it. You certainly get it, right? And I hope that your dog is um, what Snitch is to me. I hope your dog is that same thing to you, man. It's one of those beautiful, beautiful things about the symbiotic relationship between humans and animals. And we can talk about this in the abstract when it comes to horses and chickens and tactical dogs, or we can talk about this um, in terms of, of a of a newborn kitten, right? Who just brings you joy when you look at them. Anyway, needless to say, I'm a huge animal person. We've got uh, three indoor cats, four outdoor cats, 13 chickens at the moment, 25 babies on the way, um, two dogs in the house. Would love to get another dog eventually, but um, Snitch is not one to easily replace and Rhino is still young enough to be a handful. So anyway, that's a little bit of my history with um with animals and sort of the symbiotic nature of the human-animal relationship, something I'm, I'm very interested in, always have been. And I think the last thing, I'll close out on this, is this fucking plant up here. <laughs> you know, Kelly is, um, uh, Kelly's my fiance, and she she's very into plants, but she doesn't have a green thumb, so it's kind of funny. She's just, I don't want to say she's like a murderer of plants, but there's been a lot of plants that she's gotten and then somehow forgot to water or didn't place them in the correct spot or something happened and the plant died. Um, <laughs> but I'm not trying to give her a hard time. It's not like she's just out here murdering plants necessarily. But um, a plant to me represents sort of her her nature in that she's a very peaceful person. That word peaceful is so applicable to how I perceive her entire persona. She's very calm, very peaceful. And in my mind, I, I'm i not that kind of person. I think I'm chill and like mellow and not easily angered or disrupted necessarily, but my mind is extremely busy. I don't have a peaceful mind naturally, and she does. Um, and I think it's one of the one of the things that I that I love about her the most is sort of her her peaceful, just calm disposition all the time. I think it's an influence that I very much need in my life. Um, you know, and in, in a room full of dark colors and, and sharp contrasting angles and masculine shit, you know, I would never think to put a plant in here. But I have one in here. And to me, that's sort of, it's it's synonymous with like how my life looks. It's full of tactical things. It's full of mission-oriented, goal-driven sort of things. Um, but that's not what Kelly is or who she is. She is sort of the, the peaceful plant in the otherwise like masculine environment, right? Um, 
Well, <laughs> that said, she gets full reign over how the interior of the house looks. So I don't want you to think that like my house looks like my studio. This is my domain. The house is is not so much, at least from an aesthetic standpoint. But um, yeah, in more of a colder tactical environment that is my life, um, Kelly is sort of like the like a plant, right? Like a a, a natural, peaceful influence in an environment that isn't necessarily like that. So th that's sort of how I perceive our relationship. And I do hope to have her on the podcast. I think it would be interesting for you guys to meet her. Um, she's not somebody who spent a, a lot of time behind cameras in like a film context, but um, yeah, it'd be fun to do an episode on that for sure. Maybe do some like relationship questions. That would be fucking really fun, really fun. Well, I think that's enough for today. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. And again, two functions here. I hope you get to know me a little bit better with every episode, but I think this will be a good get to know you episode. Um, and then also, if any of these topics that I touched on are of interest to you and you'd like to hear these expanded upon, please let me know in the comments section. Send me an email at um, allinwithadam at gmail.com. Uh, you can find links and stuff down in the description of this video. And uh, yeah, I would love to hear what you guys think about some of these stories, potential topics. And next week, I don't know if it'll be next week, but um, the next episode certainly is going to be on rehab. Um, you know, there were some people in the comments section of the Psilocybin and God episode, the, the first episode of this podcast, who explained that they were either freshly out of rehab or that they were also in recovery. And, you know, I don't really think of myself as someone in recovery actively, though I don't drink, and it is uh, of you know, great value to me. It's a priority to me that, that I don't drink. But there are people in that community who I would love to speak to directly. Um, so I think sharing my rehab story and some of the things that I have learned about um, sobriety in general and how, how to maintain that, how to find stability after the, the chaos of addiction. Um, I have a lot that I could say about that. I also think that diving deep into the rehab story would be very interesting. I haven't done that in many years, but I'd like to revisit some of those concepts and ideas and stories and, and retell them. So the next episode will be on rehab, and I will see you guys there. Thank you all so much for watching. This has been episode three of All In with Adam, and I'll see you in the next one. Later. <laughs>